HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This week on Meet and Three, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture— luxury ice, and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sing upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, if you live in the neighborhood, you already know Buttermilk Channel and their famous brunches. In that time, Beyonce and Jay-Z celebrated New Year's Eve there. Well, Doug Kroll and Ryan Angelo opened French Louis, their follow-up Brooklyn-based bistro, as a place to further celebrate these hordes of happy customers willing to cross that river. That's because no matter where you are, where you come from, or what you're in for, they serve kindness and salt, which is the eponymous name of their book, as well as their overall ethos behind keeping eaters happy. And, you know, sticky buns and buttermilk fried chicken don't hurt either. Welcome to the show, Ryan and Doug. So it's very funny. I live almost directly in between your two restaurants. Um, And they're not poles because they're not very different, but they also aren't quite alike. Uh, Open five years apart, Buttermilk Channel sits what was a sleepier neighborhood of Carroll Gardens, and French Louis is on Atlantic Avenue, a major thoroughfare of Brooklyn. Um, How do you consider them? uh, If if you were to anthropomorphically make them your children, I'm sure they already are, uh, how would you describe those two restaurants? 
Which which one's the stepchild? <laughs> <laughs> well, Buttermilk Channel is the is the the the, the half wit. <laughs> is the village idiot. Uh, no, I mean I think of both of them as bistros, <laughs> which is a term. No, okay, but let's let's scratch that. I, th- I think of both of them as bistros, which is a, a term that doesn't necessarily mean that much. It sort of gets thrown around in a, in a generic way, but uh, to me means you know a restaurant that is sort of the hub of its community that. Uh, that is a place where you can come three times a week and have three different experiences. It has a big menu. You know, it's got to have a steak. It's probably got to have oysters. A French bistro is a place that, you know, if you're in Paris, serves sort of food from all the different regions around France uh, and, and country food, you know, sort of simple food, but in a de- definitely an urban setting. And See, I, I wondered if it's not derogatory, but I wonder if bistro is a bad term because it, it feels to me that you have to satisfy everybody. And you can't be a niche restaurant that serves a singular thing. Um, does does It's a uh, lousy term, but to yeah. me like but like but the, the quintessential like yeah. ideal bistro is, is something that means yeah. So it means something to us. And it's what we, definitely what we wanted with, with French Louis. And also, I mean, with, with Buttermilk Channel to start and then French Louis ultimately. But it, uh, it, that's not really a bad thing because we, we like to, like, appeal to a lot of different people. Yeah. We like to be, like, all occasion. Like, whatever you want to make of it. Yeah. it's not, I mean, it's not really a, a niche restaurant. Yeah. I, I mean, feel like we've won when we, like, we have a couple that comes in with our kids and they like have a little like family dinner and it's like super messy and there's stuff all over the ground and like they're feeding their kids like fried chicken bits and then they come back the next night or the next week for like an anniversary dinner. Yeah, no, I love that and I also I love the diversity that you get in there and also that swath of demographic because you're not just neighborhood restaurants anymore. Um, you know, everyone hopes to embrace the locals so you have that constant customership but People are making both of your restaurants destinations. They kind of got it because we're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as you know, you're in, if you're in a, a super dense Manhattan neighborhood, you could you could serve a very niche thing. Yeah. You know, we need to we need to have something on the menu for everyone. Especially Buttermilk Channel is truly the edge of nowhere. I mean, if you walk three blocks, two blocks in any of three directions, there's like scrap metal yards and like you know like fields of of dump trucks. It's, yeah. it's the end. Or where I have to pick up my mail if I don't receive it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. But, but where French Louis is, is is a lot more central. But still, Brooklyn. Let's talk about the story of the name behind both restaurants because I think they defined the, the character and culture of them so well. Uh, Buttermilk Channel is or was? Buttermilk Channel is and was uh, the body of water that's in between Brooklyn and Governor's Island. So if you walk to the water from where we are, which most people don't often these days. That's that's Buttermilk Channel, uh, which I feel I feel really fortunate every day that we located a restaurant next to such a delicious sounding body of water because it makes for <laughs> yeah. a great story. Yeah. And I think you need a story when you open a restaurant because when you open a when you have a new place, it doesn't have a soul, it doesn't have a story, and it's great to have a to have a story to tell. And also, Buttermilk sounds yummy. Buttermilk's sort of universally appealing. Mm-hmm. It sounds good. Well, it's not only just the name of that channel. Uh, the story that's told about that channel is that the currents were so violent, it could it churn. churns the mill yeah. into butter, yeah. Yeah. Is like, that a recipe in the book that you actually agitate a cow in a large body of water? That's for, the other yeah, recipe and, for buttermilk. It should be. It should be. <laughs> uh, and then French Louis. That came out of a lot of trial and error. Because the, the, we had a name at first. We we're going to call it Concord. Like the plane. Oh, I remember, yeah. And then we were like, there's still like mail that comes that has that, that has that shit on it. But um, the uh, but then we thought we might get sued. Someone they- advised us that like this <laughs> is not a good idea. Um, you know, you're gonna open with all this stuff, business cards, and everything else, and then you're gonna have to change the name, which would have been a real bummer. 
So then we just like, I mean, we had people making lists. Everyone we knew was like contributing a name. Our bookkeeper, remember Andrew, came up with like this huge list of like all these names, everything you could think of. And I don't really know. I was I, 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 Louis came in my head. It's hard to name a French restaurant because you, you want to give it a French name that people can pronounce. Louis, I realized I've got two two Louis Louis grandparents. My mother's from St. Louis. Her middle name's Louise. Like, okay, that's that's good. And then I looked up FrenchLouis.com because I thought maybe that would be a cuter website address. And it takes me to instead the website of this character, who's this sort of folk hero from up in the Adirondacks, who. Uh, you know, it's like a great American story. Built the Erie Canal and was a lumberjack and and, and uh, ultimately kind of a legendary, like, happy hermit character. A, a very well-documented, fortunately for us, hermit. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> hit all the marks. I mean, Doug really wanted, like, he really wanted a character to identify the place. Like, it was like a rabbit for a while named Pierre or something like that, um, <laughs> <laughs> if I remember correctly. So it kind of like, oh, we, we just kind of, like, happened upon this man that actually exists. And there it is. So you happened upon this channel, which was so strong it agitated cows, and you happened upon this French-Canadian Adirondacks uh, piece of folklore. Um, how do you become part of this story? Like, how, how do you establish Buttermilk Channel and French Louis as modern-day folklore in Brooklyn? Because I think you have. Like French Louis the person? No, French oh. Louis the restaurant. Because... Oh. I can mention Buttermilk Channel to someone that lives in California, and they know it. Yeah, it's a really it's a they're small towns or the, the the neighborhoods where our restaurants are, and it's amazing how deep we get in people's lives. I mean, Buttermilk's been ten years, French Louis now is five years, and you it's a lot. That's a, ten years is a significant chunk of time in people's lives. You know, we you see people who were like who were just dating, who now have who now have been married, who now have one kid, who have two kids. Uh, we, we just see it and. and our staff tends to stick around for a long time and they, you know, we're not, our service is very kindness oriented. So, you know, it's not formal. We can all become friends and we, we just have a deep relationship with the neighborhood and that's, and that's it. I mean, Ryan, you and I first met when you were working at Stanton social, mm. um, a place that what churned out 1500 plates a night. Yeah. It was all small plates. It was yeah. probably more than that. It's, it's a um, very different atmosphere walking into buttermilk channel for many reasons. It's not subterranean for you. Um, yeah, yeah, there was the basement. <laughs> it, it's um, a light, bright room, warm, inviting, neighborhoody in air quotes. Um, how conceptually do you create an environment that everyone feels so welcome? Um, I think just, I mean, making the food approachable and just like, that way people can like look at the menu and kind of relax like, oh, this is familiar. Oh, I know I can find something. To, like there's always something on one of the menus that, that anyone can have. Like at, at Buttermilk, there's always like a, a burger and, you know, fried chicken is pretty, uh, and then duck meatloaf, like that's pretty recognizable. And then at French Louis, it's like, oh, that, that, I don't know what to get. Steak frites. You know what I mean? That's like a whole section for you. If, if like everything seems just a little too weird, maybe that's what you have on your first try at yeah. French Louis. And then maybe the next time you go, you branch out to something else. I mean, not to knock but, Stanton Social because I loved it. And it was so ahead of the curve. Um, but, the comfort was that you knew an element. Yeah, uh, yeah, like French onion soup dumplings. Yeah, but the dish as a whole wasn't. Yeah, no, didn't that was, resonate. Yeah, and it was like very, like very specifically plated, and and, and uh, you know, it was all small plates. Yeah. Um, which is great. I liked working there. I mean, I was there for like three years, um, but I definitely wanted that change at that point to like something more, 
homie. I remember saying to one of the uh, one of the owners when he asked me why I was leaving, I was like, I haven't really made soup in like three years. Like, just you know what I mean? Like, you just want to make like soup and serve it to someone. Like, because you don't couldn't know what you mean at all. But yes, no, I kind of know, know what you mean. Well, you couldn't do that yeah. there. Like, it would always you'd always have to like take um, a dish that you were thinking of and, and kind of and, and put it into that format. Yeah. So if you like, even like I did a version of the chicken and waffles there. But I had to make it shareable. So it was very different than the one at Buttermilk. What was the um, first soup that you two shared? Or who courted who? How did this collaboration start? I, we, 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 I didn't have a chef for this restaurant I was planning. So I took out a Craigslist ad. And that's how you meet anyone. That's how, you, that's how everyone. <laughs> did you just, ask, do you know how to make soup? Yeah, I said. Yeah. I said, hey, "Would you interested in making soup?" Uh, yeah, no, we had a, we had an interview uh, that went that went pretty well, and then uh, Ryan had me over to his tiny, like tiny little apartment in um, Astoria. In Astoria, and him and his wife put together like a you know however many eight courses, like little tasting thing that was first of all really really wonderful, like really simple, delicious, you know, wonderful food, but also. Was I was so impressed with the hospitality of it. I mean, the two of them had like eight dishes, or four, like between between them, and they were like hustling around. His wife's washing dishes, and like just the 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 the, the level of hospitality there, because hospitality is like not just a front of house thing. That's like that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yeah, and Ryan was interested in. I, I thought the neighborhood could use a, a bistro, you know, as I said, uh, sort of a you know a place that could be like the the hub of its community. Uh, and Ryan was interested in doing that too. Yeah, you came from working at Blue Water Grill, which, like Santon Social, the volume, the numbers alone are, are just astronomical compared to, well, I mean, you guys are doing very well for yourselves it's now. It's just closed. Yeah. Really? Yeah, so, oh, so yeah. did Stan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so did Stan Social. Which is wild. Yeah, Blue Water was like, it's like being on like a train station. It was yeah. just people just pouring through there, and you didn't really have a lot of personal relationships. So do you have to pair things back to make them feel comfortable do you have to pair menus and have people deal with less volume for it to have some sense of hospitality how do you adjust going from such a big box into these two amazing singular restaurants um and make people warm again i mean for us in the front of house it's really about it's really about kindness. Like it says in the cover of the book. I mean, our, our hospitality is pretty simple. It's like, it's really basic niceness and compassion. You know, seeing someone come to the door and feeling, have a, having a feeling for what that person wants and believing that it's important. We were just, as we were sitting down here having pizza, uh, talking about restaurants that will remain nameless where we've been recently where people were really mean to us. You know, I think everyone, including me, walks into a restaurant for the first time in New York City it's like intimidating and you're like you feel insecure and you're like how are they going to reject me what are they going to tell me that some some you know really pretty looking person is going to walk up to me and tell me that it's a three-hour waiter that i just can't be there it can be you know we we well we strive to do the opposite (laughs) we want to welcome you in every way and make you feel comfortable and and identify ways that we can give you a better time and it extends to the kitchen as well do you have a phrase an idiom that you ask people to say at the door uh to greet people and in that how do you parlay that into working a table? Uh, they smile. They got a smile. I mean, it's like I always tell people when I'm interviewing them that we we like may all know people and love people who are like shy and weird and awkward and like come off as mean and, and you love them anyway. But like that's not that's not the kind we need. <laughs> you know, yeah. I need like I need a big smile personality. 
And uh, you really just have to care about someone having a good time. If you don't, then like you're not going to be able to do it. You can't fake it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that goes to say with food as well. Well, from the kitchen perspective, it's like a lot of chefs um, think that it's easier just to say no when someone has a request or something like that. But it's, it's so much easier to just say yes. You know, you want your steak without salt, you know, like not at all the way I'm preparing it with just like a side of greens and that's it. It's like, of, of course you can have it that way. You so, know what I mean? It's just like, I mean, there's certain specials that you'll make that you really want it to be the way, you know, you made seven of them, you know, and you just want it to be like that thing. And you'll say, okay, there's no modifications on this one tonight. But like, it's so much easier to just like, just to say yes to people. I mean, what what are the limits of allowances you've allowed people to have? What what are the weirdest orders? And did you bend over backwards for you know Beyonce and Jay Z, or did they want exactly what was on menu? <laughs> they wanted what was on the menu. That, that was New Year's Eve. But Beyonce is coming before for brunch. Um, I think with her sister, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, she was just like, "I want chicken wings," and we don't have chicken wings. <laughs> and, and my That's sous chef right. Andrew Pease was downstairs, pulled out a case of chicken, cut all the wings off. And made her chicken wings. So we had a bunch of wingless birds for a couple services. <laughs> that wouldn't be a problem I, anymore. She I, would have a bean stew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's vegan now. Oh, she's vegan now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but things that are physically possible, we like to do. I, I mean, and, and brunch. You know, everyone's saying no at brunch. Like, are you, uh, we, we, we do not. But on the Mill Channel, we'll yeah. do all sorts of wacky stuff. I've always told people the brunch menu is just a list of suggestions. And you hope that most people take those suggestions. That's all it is. Excellent. When I come in and ask for the weirdest iterated dish, and you guys still say yes, I know that you're being honest today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're used to it. I know brunch. Brunch is breakfast, and breakfast is like I don't know. You're you're half awake. You maybe sort of regress into sort of a childhood place. I don't know. You just want what you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to be at Buttermilk Channel or French Louis right now. Why we ever came all the way to the studio. <laughs> where we could have just stayed in the hood. I don't know. But on that, we're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFad's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael harlan Turkel, here today with Doug and Ryan of Buttermilk Channel and French Louis. And it, we have to talk about the food. I mean, that, of course, is such a large draw of these two restaurants, of all restaurants. Um, and we can 
talk ad nauseum about the the hospitality and kindness. I'm already nauseated. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, because that is also foremost. Uh, the way you've cultivated such an inviting atmosphere. But then when you sit down and you have delicious food, there's no leaving. I mean, the retention of customers that come there must be so super high. Um, what what are your dishes? Like, what do you crave at either restaurants? And what are the best sellers and why? Um, well, the best sellers at Buttermilk are fried chicken, right, still to this day? Yeah, chicken and waffles um, and a brunch. I don't know, pork, fried pork chop. What do you eat for dinner, though? At, what do you eat for dinner at French Louis? French Louis? Oh, my, my go-to is steak tartare and fried anchovies together. Yeah. Ooh, I haven't done that. That's a strong move. Although the other night, I did snails and... We have this new, like, tuna, grilled tuna kind of appetizer in the Lemire section. I did that one. That was a good combination. And I mainly ate the snails because we use this one, this uh, small farm out of Peconic, and um, Peconic Escargot. And uh, people aren't used to those snails. They're, like, minerally and, and just very vegetal. And uh, someone had complained about it, and I was like, well, I'm going to eat some snails tonight. And I'm like, these are, these are delicious. Like, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I, I am a sucker for small fish. But you guys had me at uh, that pecan pie sundae. Mm. And it's named after you. It's Doug's pecan <laughs> pie sundae, correct? Yeah, we opened right, right around, uh, right before Thanksgiving, like two days before Thanksgiving. Uh, so pecan pie was sort of on our, on our brains. And uh, I don't know. You had that idea. You had an idea to do a pecan pie sundae, right? Yes. I remember you asking me two days or the day before we opened, like, are you going to give me your pecan pie recipe? Because I, I, I do always make that at home yeah. for my family, and I'm sort of the only one who's eating it. Uh, but now I, I said, I probably said, I don't know, just make a pecan pie. Just make sure it has molasses in it. But yeah. that be, we were going to do that as a seasonal sort of thing, but then it's like, that was just a hit. Yeah, There's no need to ever take that off the menu. Yeah. Because the first time I actually came into Buttermilk Channel is when I photographed the New Brooklyn Cookbook. And I believe you guys were the last restaurant that... Um, the writers accepted in that book. It was about 31 restaurants and makers. And, um, they wanted you in that book, I think, solely based on the buttermilk chicken and that pecan pie. And I photographed it. I had it. And I've never forgotten it. <laughs> there you go. I have it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> A little taste. Not the whole thing. Whereas that restaurant has so many familiar things, or at least to most people. Um, French Louis does this great job of introducing well i know it's classic french cuisine but new things to the menu mm. and i've also become so smitten with the sokas that you do oh uh, yeah, we've yeah. emailed multiple times yeah, about yeah, it, yeah, and yeah, we make yeah, it yeah. at home all the time <laughs> um do you feel like you have a lot more liberty to play at french louis uh because it's it's french american versus what buttermilk channel is um yeah i mean i can kind of go off you know, I could throw some Japanese on the menu if I wanted to, and it wouldn't seem that out of place. Um, and uh, the the menu at French Louis from the beginning just it just changes more often. People are more used to that kind of concept of like a lot of things, maybe just the setups and whatnot changing, changing very often. Like I change it, like of course, like. 30% of it never changes. Like, the steak frites stay the same, and there's a few kind of, like, things that have become signatures, like a couple salads and the snails and whatnot. Um, but then there's other things that we just, like, take on and off, you know, all the time, just yeah. depending on, on the day and what's available and whatnot. 
I mean, never take off the lamb French dip. <clears throat> it's a favorite of mine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you still, yeah. you still do the trout po' boy, too. Yeah, lunch and yeah. brunch I don't change too much because it doesn't really – it doesn't need to be. And, and, and I feel like people that come in for lunch, they want – you know, they want that regularity. They want to know they can come and get their French dip or their chicken paillard. And, you know, if I change it, they're going to be like, why the hell did you change it? Yeah. <laughs> well, now you screwed um, yourself, too, by writing a book because people are going to cook things at home – Compare it to what they have in the restaurant, and there's going to have this wanted need for ultimate consistency. Mm. Um, how do you pleasure somebody by being consistent, being that rock? Let's take it from a salt standpoint, actually, because you, you have techniques on how you salt in the book. Um, what methodology should people always be using for salt, and what, do they, what should they expect at both restaurants on a salt level? Oh, that it's going to be seasoned to like, you know, to to a to a degree that you're that you might not be used to. <laughs> like, why does this taste different at a restaurant and not at home? Because at home, you're like, oh, that's that might be too much salt, or you might think it's too much salt. Um, but at the restaurant, I mean, we're very we season very liberally. You know, it's it's just a uh, just like just like any restaurant probably. Um, but it's seasoned until it, it tastes you know, the way that we want it until it tastes, like, really, really great. Um, and you might be a little shy with the salt shaker or seasoning at home um, just because it looks like a lot, when, it, when in actuality it's not. I mean, if you, if you, like, seasoned a bunch of steaks, like 10 steaks, if you actually, like, pour that into a measuring spoon or something, it would probably be, like, a teaspoon at the end of the day. You know, yeah. but, but it looks like a lot when you're doing it. But I've always loved uh, blanch your water to make it taste like the ocean. Mm-hmm. I mean, that does seem intense, but you also roast vegetables on top of blankets of salt. <laughs> um, with that, you also promote big flavors in, in the French you know, scope of things. And I haven't seen a cookbook in a while that I read and read terms like aioli, hollandaise, bordelaise, bernaise, pisto, and not think of it as a French cookbook. I thought of it as a neighborhood cookbook. I thought of it as a Brooklyn cookbook. Um, we tried to throw around French too much, but certain they, they really nail certain certain things sound better in French. Yeah. <laughs> and they've had some really good ideas. I mean aioli is central to cuisine yeah. Angulo. And what else are you gonna call Hollandaise? I mean Hollandaise is just Holland like there's no other word for it. It's yeah. a really good idea you know, too. Um, yeah. I, I love Hollandaise. Yeah. Call it hot butter mayonnaise. I mean I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean it sounds delicious. <laughs> but I mean ha- how has the lexicon changed since you've opened up buttermilk to French Louis um, in how people n- read a menu or interpret food or have expectations of your restaurants i think the education on food just gets more you know people are just more willing to try stuff every year i mean it's just we're so saturated with like this food knowledge now food network and cooking channel and shows like this i mean uh 10 years ago they were they were there but there's there's even more now like i mean as many as you want pretty much and people's interest in food um, it's just been kind of become one of those things where like people are just so into experiences now. Like, they want to eat it, they want to take a picture of it, they want to talk about it, you know, write a post about it. You know, it's like the whole thing. I think like a critical mass of French restaurants sort of like broke through people's prejudice about French food too. There was like there was an idea coming out of the '70s and '80s that French food was really fussy and basically not what you wanted to eat, or it was this really rich, crazy thing that was also therefore not something you would want frequently. 
and I don't know, there's been a lot of French restaurants in the last 10 years in New York City that I think finally pushed people. It's still not like, yeah. Italian food I think is like the most, the most well-liked food there yeah. is. Yeah. Also, taking French out of French cuisine, meaning that you're not serving Dover Sole, you're going to local sources. And I love that you highlight um, not only Rhode Island, because Ryan, you were from there, mm. uh, but Sheep's Head Bay here in Brooklyn, and using these you know, great waters to be able to pull from. Um, Snug Harbor, too, in Staten Island for its greens. I mean, I, I only drive through Staten Island, and I know how beautiful Snug Harbor is, but... What are these places, kind of like Buttermilk Channel was, maybe that thoroughfare of Atlantic Ave, uh, these overseen areas of artisans and, and products and expertise that you utilize in these restaurants that you think need to be highlighted? Well, Snug Harbor, that's like a, a personal relationship that I have with uh, John Wilson, who's like the head farmer there, because um, they're very small production. I mean, sometimes he'll call me up and be like, the whole, like, he called me up a couple of weeks ago and was like, your whole order froze. <laughs> I, I, I don't have it and it's like okay you know and that, that's just what happens with a, a small I think they've only got like four acres or something like that. it might even be smaller than that um, so it's very small production but and so we try to work it in you know as much as we can but I mean that's with any small like really small like micro producer like that but um, we wanted to highlight it in the book because it's just like a cool relationship and this produce is awesome I mean, I think he sells to like per se now and places like that, you know, so it's a... And that's a real farm that's like planted, as he shall point out, like in the ground of mm -hmm. New York City, yeah. Yeah, which yeah, you really yeah. can't do anywhere else. All the ground of New York City is poison one way or another. Yeah. But <laughs> that place, because of its history, is is clean. Yeah. yeah. It's and being yeah. the harbor that it is, and it has a whole bunch of wooden ships in that area, too. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so well-preserved and so bountiful. And, you know, Staten Island gets a bad rap, especially with new television shows kind of aiming to do so. Yeah. But it's really got so much great produce coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. I mean, and hopefully, like, people barely remember that the Staten Island dump used to be, like, a thing. Like, you can see it from space. Um, that was, like, a thing for years. But now it's becoming, they're going to turn into, like, a beautiful park. And, like, that land will probably become pretty fertile, you know. Uh, maybe in, in another generation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but let's, still. let's talk about Sheepshead Bay in the same mm -hmm. vein. Um, what's so special about that body of water? Well, it's just like, you know, it's, I mean, it's been a fishing community forever. Hey, we were just, in the city, we're a little bit out of touch with the stuff that's so close to us, specifically our waterways. I mean, Butter, the Buttermill Channel neighborhood, like, was founded around its harbor. But you're not really aware of there being a harbor there now. And Sheepshead Bay is right is right there, yeah. and all these wonderful fish are, are in the waters right there and around and in Long Island. Yeah, Doug and I went out. We went fishing one day off of Sheepshead Bay, and we, it was during striped bass season. And we brought back like eight beautiful, gigantic bass. It was right when French Louis opened, because our electrician was um, <laughs> took us, uh, and uh, we split up the fish between both restaurants and had this beautiful fish for like all these specials for a few days. And I mean, that's what's in Sheepshead Bay, you know, like beautiful fresh pristine fish you people read don't think of that this know? part of the world when when europeans first arrived here and it was just so dense with wildlife you know the air is just like thick with ducks and the, there were cod you could just pull them out of the water and oysters everywhere and we ate most of that and sent it to other places but there's still so much i mean there's still so much in the ocean yeah, and aside from the ocean, some of the land animals that you just mentioned, I feel like both of your restaurants really highlight the breadth of what is here and what can be done. You're not singular in the sense that you're not just a fried chicken restaurant at Buttermilk, though you could be if you ever wanted to be, and you're not just a steak frites restaurant at French Louis. 
how do you define yourselves past that, you know, one bastion of why people come there? Um, I don't know. I mean, different things to different people. I just, there's always like, there's for someone who comes in like, always wants to know what's new. There's people who only get one thing over and over again forever. You know, there's a, one of our, one of our best customers who every time he comes tells us how he'll never get the fried chicken. Uh, oh, never. He just abstains. <laughs> He's like, I would never get that. That's boring. I would never get that. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is why you know it's good to have a. It's good to have a. We have a huge menu. It's <laughs> massive. Good menu. Yeah. Good menu. And it's, it's about like taking the same pride in every item on the menu, whether it's your steak frites or your, you know, duck meatloaf or, or whatever it is. I think one of the best compliments I got from a customer. I can't remember who it was, but it was at Buttermilk. And she was like, this is my husband and I's uh, favorite place for fish. And I was like, holy crap, that's awesome. You know, like, you know, I n- didn't really hear that very often. Yeah. I mean, I point. think of that at sitting at the bar at French Louis. It's my favorite place for small, you know, small fish bites mm-hmm. and having a cocktail or a glass of wine. Um, it, I know you've opened up in Tokyo, too, and I kind of want to touch on that neighborhood. I mean, it's a big neighborhood, Harajuku. And it's, it's far different than, you know, Carroll Gardens and Atlantic Avenue. I guess it's like the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> if a neighborhood yeah. could have an opposite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a very fish-forward society. Um, what do you serve there that is standard of both buttermilk channels? Um, and are there any Japanese iterations of your classic dishes? Mm, there's not really any Japanese iterations yet. And we'll, we'll see, I guess. But um, it's kind of like a greatest hits menu. For that. It's like you know, it's right? more it's like, than great. It's almost a copy. I mean, it's like, but it's like brunch. I mean, they serve brunch every day. That's yeah. one thing that's different. They serve pancakes um, all the time. Pancakes, pancakes yeah. are available at dinner because pancakes are the most popular they thing. Are it's God a over big, there. yeah, big. <laughs> ours are weird. Uh, you know, are different for them. They're like they call them traditional because they're they're not sweet and they're they're like plain. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're, they're flavored with maple syrup. And you put maple syrup on them. Yeah. But like you can get that. Like there's some brunch items that you can get all day. And then there's like, I don't know, there's like the duck meatloaf's there, chicken's there. The one, ver- one version of the steak's there because there's been so many, like the steak changes seasonally at the one, you know, in, in Brooklyn. There it's not so seasonal just yet. It's, you know, it's just, it's just a different, different uh, like kind of restaurant. The way it's, just the way it's run is different. These dishes are pretty much, I mean, they're pretty much identical. They're like 30% smaller because people just eat smaller. Even even with the smaller menu items, most people will share one entree. Uh, and just a few, most of the ingredients were all really great. Our potatoes were a little, we're, we had trouble finding a potato Yeah, french fries. The french fries are kind of short, kind of mini french fries. The crispy potato the crispy is not is a small potato. <laughs> the small potato, yeah. yeah. They don't have our big American potatoes. It's better um, than soggy and long. Yeah. So do you yeah, import American yeah. potatoes for that, or how do you? No, you know, I went to McDonald's just to see, and like their potatoes, their French fries sucked. Interesting. <laughs> no, they were different. It was like, ah, oh, this really, this isn't the same. So, whereas the food changes, how does the hospitality change in in Japan? I know there are so many different ideologies behind uh, um, hospitality in Japanese restaurants. Did you study any of that? I mean, there's so many. There's so many different kinds of restaurants there, obviously, that have different styles of hospitality. Uh, one thing I love there, I particularly love there, and we don't think of ourselves as being, like, too inhibited here in New York, but, like, in, in a Tokyo restaurant, you can wave down your waiter, and that's not a bad thing. Where so often we sit, and, like, we're barely even looking up. We're just, like, sitting there hoping that someone will come our way. <laughs> and it, like, really can can make for an uncomfortable situation uh, where you feel like you're being neglected. But there you can just wave, and it's not a problem. I appreciate that. <laughs> are, are you asking people to do that to you at Buttermilk Channel? Is that okay? 
No, we feel terrible. It's yeah. so cultural. <laughs> if someone weighs, you feel so bad. But if not, I had to remind myself there, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Are there any other things you picked up from being in Japan and brought back to Buttermilk or French Louis and instituting those restaurants? Maybe we couldn't bring back, but like, we loved how everyone washed dishes there. Yeah, that was cool. There's no dishwasher. Like, no designated, like, hired dishwasher. Front of the house, back of the house, when there's dishes, they just, no one's doing anything, you go and do it. I can see that. I can't see that. I can't see that happening here. I have a great imagination, but. (laughs) I mean, they do that, and I I saw that in Europe, too. Um, I trailed at a few places in Ireland a long time ago, and, like, the hostess, when she was done seating people, she'd put on an apron and go in the back and do the dishes. That was her other job. And I was like, that's great. I mean, you've already promoted the idea of those two restaurants or the communities you're in being familiar. You know, uh, almost having customers feel like part of your family. So you could tell them to get up and wash. I mean, you can probably ask patrons <laughs> we to really help do, out. Like, we really do break down those, those barriers. Yeah. We have some very close relationships. <laughs> People have stepped through to the other side. Yeah, really? Who? I just, you know. I mean, there's a story we tell in that book of, like, we've got this one girl, Lucy, who we keep the staff got into making birthday cakes for her. And we're talking not the kitchen. This is like two waiters. And it just got to every year, you know, over say four years now, her cakes have gotten bigger and more elaborate. And two of them started, went and took like pastry lessons so they could like, you know, make (laughs) the unicorn cake for, you know, to blow. (laughs) It's like, it's kind of fun to go over the top for an eight year old, you know, but, and she's been in the, she was in the kitchen helping with her cake. That's awesome. Yeah. And at, at, Five and ten years old. I mean, you, you're an ingrained part of this community, this society now. Where, where do you see yourself in the next five, ten years? What do Buttermilk Channel and French Louis change? Are there more of those types of restaurants of yours on the horizon? And hopefully, they won't have to change too much. Yeah, I mean, I like them both the way they are now. Um, more yeah. robots. <laughs> more robots. Yeah. That's what I felt after watching the Super Bowl commercials. I'm like, wow, it's 75% robots now. Was it? Like, oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm fearful, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, we can, we can get really, really kind robots. Yeah. Well, at least you've had one consistent throughout the years, and it is that kindness. It is that mm. salt, uh, that level of consistency. Um, in this changing day and age, do you find with labor laws, with you know, uh, food media, with... Uh, people's you know ever expansive knowledge of what's on their plate do you see those two main tenants ever changing no yeah i don't see them changing it's a very old it's a old it's sort of an old-fashioned style of restaurant certainly for new york city it's one that you see less of reasons that you're sort of hitting on like the cost of labor and the cost of rent we're seeing more getting pushed to the bottom and the top of the sort of chain where like uh, we've got fast casual exploding where you're like just kind of ordering from a counter and, and, and you've got, you know, at the high end, a sort of very formal tasting menu experience. We have a, we have sort of an old fashioned style of restaurant where, you know, you're, you're having a, a fine dining experience, but, but a very friendly and personal one. Well, I mean, I'm a little old fashioned. I hope things never change and I hope always to live in between your two restaurants. <laughs> I hope you will too. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you both for being on Great. and everyone should, not only stop by the restaurants, but check out this amazing copy of Kindness and Salt out now everywhere books are sold. Awesome. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, MoFad. That's the Museum of Food and Drink. Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.